I'm Zach Carlson, and you are listening to the World is Wrong podcast with Andas Jones and Brian Connolly, usually. We're here to tell you how the world is wrong. The world is wrong about We're here to tell you how the world is wrong. The world is wrong about a state of grace. <laughs> Welcome to The World is Wrong, an extremely positive podcast. With two deodorants. No, an extremely positive <laughs> podcast where we celebrate films and film artists the world is wrong about. I'm one of your hosts, and my name is Andros Jones. And I'm the other host, Brian Connolly. Though I'm not really hosting this episode, I'm kind of taking a break, so my friend, writing partner Zach Carlson, can do it for me. You're the ghost of a host, in that <laughs> you haunt this episode while not being a part of it. And yeah, we have Zach Carlson returning. You may remember him from our episode where we discussed the film's birth and the film Destroyer, two episodes from our month of kid mania. And now he's back to talk about State of Grace, a film by a director whose name is not Phil Janua, as I have been referring to him for the last several decades. His name is actually Phil... Joanu. 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 And I know this because Alex Simon, who was a guest on the episode where we talked about September 30th, 1955, went to college with Phil Joanu. And when I was talking with him about Phil Janua, he was polite. He, he didn't correct me. He just said Phil Joanu. And I was like, wait a second. You know, earlier in an earlier episode, you said, "Hey, Andras, aren't you the kind of person who you're kind of the kind of person who corrects people's grammar? I'm the kind of person who corrects my own grammar. If I notice that I'm getting something wrong, I'm like, hold, hold on a second. Am I getting this wrong? And he was like, yes, yes, you are. You are getting it wrong. Jawanu. And so okay. I get it wrong throughout this entire episode. Every time I say Janua, <laughs> just remember, I'm saying Joanu, like Kianu, not Kanua. Quinoa, whatever I would have been. Yeah. Quinoa. Quinoa. His name is not Quinoa Reeves. It's Quinoa Keanu Reeves. Reeves and Phil Jawanu. Got it. So let's, let's play a clip from the film, and then let's go to my conversation with Zach. There might be spoilers. There might be spoilers. There might be spoilers. What the fuck were you doing, Norman? He was hitting Stevie, thing. I know he was hitting Stevie. He was supposed to be hitting Stevie. Stevie was acting like an asshole. I don't know what we got to beat the shit out of an old man for. To scare him, you clown. To fucking scare him. He was scared. He was already scared. We're trying to intimidate this dickhead. The next thing I know, we're in a self-inflicted brawl acting like a bunch of cowboys acting wild. The one thing Varelli don't want! He will piss on us! He thinks we lost our sense of manners. Well, personally, Frankie, I was fucking proud of you. Acting like yourself for a change. Jumping in there for some of it. Not like some goddamn grease ball. You gotta check with Borelli before you take a shit so I don't know who you are half the fucking time. Fuck you. I'm sorry if I love you, but you're my brother. You're a curse, is what you are. I've been taking care of you my whole life. You were doing a good job of it, too, Frankie. State of Grace is the third film from director Phil Juanu an Irish gangster drama starring Sean Penn, Gary Oldman, Ed Harris, and Robin Wright, with supporting players John C. Riley, John Turturro, and Burgess Meredith. This was Juanu's big directorial swing after impressing with his debut, Three O'Clock High, 
and striking musical zeitgeist pay dirt with the U2 concert film Rattle and Hum. State of Grace is the story of Sean Penn's Terry Noonan, a kid who grew up in Hell's Kitchen only to get out and become a Boston cop who has now returned to the neighborhood undercover to infiltrate the notorious Flannery gang led by big brother Frankie, Ed Harris, and his wildcard younger brother Jackie, played by Gary Oldman. This all leads to the rekindling of Noonan's relationship with Robin Wright, playing the sister of the Flannery clan, Kathleen, who has rejected her brother's life of crime and moved uptown. Over the course of the film, Penn's Noonan unravels under the influence of massive alcohol consumption, ghosts from his past, and his conflicted loyalties to his childhood friends and the job. We'll get into it shortly, but this film stands as the high watermark for Juwanu and one of the best crime dramas of the 1990s. The reasons for its lack of success and acclaim have little to do with the film's quality, and it is more than deserving of a revisit. If only to reappraise the work of Robin Wright, who has some of the best scenes in this deeply underrated film. Now... Let's get down to our talk with Zach Carlson about it. So, Zach, welcome back to The World is Wrong. I'm here again. I'm still wearing the same socks as last time. I'm sorry. Oh, well, you know, uh, I have my air conditioner turned on, so there might, there might be a low hum to this whole thing. So, okay. or even, you radiate the smell, I will radiate the sound, and we just need three other podcasters to radiate the other three senses that we're not capable That's- of. <laughs> um, so we're already we have we just started we're already riffing like old friends because we are old friends that's true we're very old <laughs> and and friends and friends we're very friends oh that's wonderful yes well this is a film we're going to be talking about a film that is about friends and uh <laughs> <laughs> uneasy friendships uneasy alliances so uh state of grace now, did you recommend, did you suggest this film? Did I suggest this film? I know we were having a great conversation about films, and you mentioned yeah. loving this film. It made me go back and watch it, and I realized, God damn, this is a great, like, not just a good, not just a very good, not just an underappreciated film, but a great, like a truly great from end to end movie in pretty much every way a movie can be great, I think. Right. Uh, but... We haven't really since then. Since I came to that realization of really how great it is, uh, we haven't spoken. So why don't you, uh, whether or not you chose it, hold forth on why you think this is worth talking about. Well, it, it wasn't that the movie was like reviled and rejected by the public. It was like it never happened. Like it just it existed, but that was arguable because <laughs> like. I mean, I had never heard a single thing about it from anybody in my life. Not once. So when I came across it on video, it was, um, I just said, well, you know, I like Ed Harris. These people all know how to do their jobs. Like, maybe this will be okay. And that was what made me pull it off the shelf at the store, the video store. And then it was just like shockingly strong. And I only later read why it didn't get any sort of attention but we can get to that later well well why don't we actually no this is the place for that so what are the reasons that you think that 
this film didn't get the, what it deserved in terms of attention. I mean, it's like, you know, it's a New York crime epic that, you know, like is kind of not sprawling, but it does like cover a lot of ground, like emotionally and character wise. And it came out like exactly the same day as Goodfellas, you know? And so like people deciding what movie they're going to see in the theater, it's like, oh, do I go see this Martin Scorsese New York crime movie? Or do I see this one by the guy who directed Three O'Clock High? Like, you know, the, I mean, not that they knew about that movie or that he was connected, but it just was like, Obviously, Scorsese is like, you know, the big boy, which people don't usually get to say because he's a dwarf. But um, <laughs> sorry, no offense to all you Scorsese family people out there. Um, but it's. Uh, <laughs> no, it's just, no, no, not worried about the offense to. Uh, to smaller people. These are dwarfs. I mean, no, I've already, you know, I've already made my peace with them, okay. like Doc Hilmer. Um, so. I. I think it was just a matter of, like, you know, just people choosing the better-known movie. It's like if Lost Boys and Near Dark had come out at the same time, like, you know, which they practically did, but not exactly the same day. Like, you know, Lost Boys would have just completely annihilated it. And do you, you know. feel like this, It's when you compare Near Dark and Lost Boys, Lost Boys is sort of the commercial you know, the big commercial thing, but Near Dark is generally regarded as the greater film. I like Lost Boys more. Okay, but you, you know what I mean? Like, I guess yeah. the question is, I have my own answer for this, but do you feel like this film's State of Grace is is up to the comparison? Like, it, maybe not for the same day in the competition for people's dollars. But when we look back at crime, sprawling crime films of that era, do mm -hmm. you feel like State of Grace can go can go toe-to-toe -to -toe with Goodfellas? I mean, it's a really different feeling. Like, you know, Goodfellas moves at a pace where it covers just, like, decades, you know? And State of Grace is very contained. Um, and so that is, like, you get to know the characters you know, based on like the situation that they are in throughout the whole movie, rather than like over a 15 year period of their lives, you know, I mean, like I is correct me if I'm wrong, but like state of grace all takes place over the course of like a week. Right. Maybe not a week, but yeah, a very short, maybe a month, but a very short period of time. Yeah. Yes. It, I mean, in that, in that case, the film has its own pay, like not frantic or frenetic pace, because I feel like right. this film is a lot more, elegant i mean it's different it's at a different place this is phil Janua's like first his first big boy film right and scorsese you know i guess you could say that Janua's was working in sort of mean streets taxi driver territory and uh -huh. scorsese's at a whole other place in his career where he is you know he's obviously a much more assured artist and he doesn't have to he doesn't have to uh introduce himself with his film we already know it and so he can break a bunch of rules and be exciting in a way that like that maybe genre couldn't with uh with this one but i i maybe it's just me being cantankerous but i think i am i'm more partial to state of grace than to goodfellas once again sorry to the 
Scorsese family out there. This I don't. This is that's not a. And to me, that's not a knock on Goodfellas. Like if you think Goodfellas right. has to be the greatest film in the world and no, no other films get to exist, then we just fundamentally disagree about uh, films and art. But if you like that kind of film, while you're watching State of Grace, you're not going to be thinking, "Damn, I was wish I wish I was watching Goodfellas." You're going to be like, "Fuck." This is another great movie. How come I haven't heard right. of this? Um, that was my reaction. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, let, let's talk about some of the... So one of the other things about this. So Phil Jonua had just come out of uh, working with U2 on Rattle and Hum. And I think it's interesting that... So his first film was Three O'Clock High. Right. In, I think, 87. And then 88, he's working with... U2 on basically the their, the live album that comes out of or the live film that follows the Joshua Tree tour. So he's traveling with U2 at the height of their U2-ness. And the film that he comes out with after that is this very Irish film where both Gary Oldman and Sean Penn look like they are different versions of Bono. And, uh, and U2 were actually supposed to do the music for this. And then they pulled out at the last minute and they got stuck with this, uh, this unknown Italian composer, uh-huh. uh, Ennio Morricone. <laughs> heard of him? Nope. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Which is kind of amazing. And, and this soundtrack that's full of like really hard to get like song, like there's Bruce Springsteen and this, the stone street fighting man and guns and roses uh, Welcome to the Jungle and Sinead O'Connor and which is kind of odd that you have Ennio Morricone to be the composer and then you fill your music with contemporary sort of rock yeah. hits but it it actually kind it actually kind of works but in my mind I have this image that somewhere along the line you two pulled out and they're like okay well we have to pull out of this but we like you so you can use our Rolodex and right. say that we sent you. And Bruce Springsteen's like, oh, okay, sure. Use use the song, you know, Mick Jagger and Keith. Oh, yeah, you go ahead. Use the song. Ennio Morricone. He's like, yeah, I'll, I'll compose. It's not his greatest work, but it's good. I mean, it's it's in the in the sense that I say it's not his greatest. It's uh, it's really good. There's just not a lot to it. He has a couple of things in it, but they're, you know, it's it's solid and foreboding and romantic and. So that's one piece of drama that's around it's coming out. And then it's also the first film with Sean Penn and Robin Wright after coming off of Sean Penn and Madonna. So right. is, is the YouTube Mark Coney thing the biggest trade up in the history of movie soundtracks? Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, like, I'm sure he was bummed, but like, what a dodge bullet that is for him, yeah. really. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, it's true. Like, as far as making this a timeless more of a timeless classic if it right. had U2 music all the way through it. It would have dated the hell out of it. Yeah. Yeah. You can almost, you can kind you can almost miss the U2-ness of it if you don't know the context. Like if you aren't doing the sort of contextual math that I'm doing, you could watch this right. film and not think about that at all. But I like to, yeah. to, to put it out there as context. So, you have this whole this sort of U two world meeting the movie star couple. Uh, this is 
What's really interesting, when I was researching Robin Wright, so she did The Princess Bride. That was obviously the first thing that made her a star. But then she was on some TV soap opera like Falcon Crest or something like that. I, what was it? Oof. For like four years, which is just kind of weird. She, you must, she must just been playing the pretty blonde lady in Santa Barbara, the TV series Santa Barbara. Oh, my Barbara. God. Do you and know what happens on the show? What? That show's insane. <laughs> okay. Uh, it's okay. So it was a regular soap opera for years. You're like, you know, oh, Rick, how could you do that or whatever? And then they were like, oh, the ratings, they're rough. So they had the big one hit, uh, you know, the San Andreas Fault. And two of the main characters get sucked down into a earthquake crevice where they encounter a albino race of telepathic super beings who have lived in the center of the earth. The ones Hitler was looking for, which is a true thing. And wow. uh, they spent like months down there in that place. Is that the real? I don't know. what. Yeah. Oh, my God. That's uh, that's wild. You have opened up a whole you've I feel like you've opened up a crater into the earth and I've been sucked down into it. I, I yeah. this is that is crazy. I don't even know how to relate to it. It's such a <laughs> odd sidebar. But I guess my point is, so she was this star in Princess Bride and then she's on the TV show. And then basically the next thing you know, she's in a movie in this movie with Sean uh-huh. Penn and I don't know about you but I watching again I thought just thought her performance it's the one that when I saw it when it came out I was really not mature enough to get how great she is in this and watching it yeah. now like just the way uh, spoiler alerts everyone I'm sure I probably said it earlier but you know I'm gonna give some stuff away the way she just does, eventually does not fall for any of these guys bullshit is like kind of the only heroic thing in the movie. And when I was younger, I kind of bought what they all said about her was like, you're so cold. Why don't you care? You're like, Oh, you're so cold. And I'm watching now. I'm like, thank God. I wish more women movies were this cold. (laughs) Then we're just like, fuck you. I'm not going to, yeah, do it. Go have your adventure, but I'm not going to sit around and watch you do this or, you know, whatever. It's just like, there's some great scenes. She has some 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 great scenes. I don't feel like she has the best stuff. I mean, the the guys do have a lot more to do, but for a role that is kind of thankless and set up to be a loser, she she really tears it to shreds. Uh, yeah, I'm. If I could go back and give a retroactive Oscar, I think I she would like. There's no way she was nominated for it for anything for this, but she should have been nominated for something for it best supporting actress totally can't I, there's no way something better was in 1990 maybe, yeah but because she um i mean that, that's a role where like typically that character would just unfortunately they just like would trade a woman like currency you know like you know what i mean like, that's how those movies treated women too it's like too often and she doesn't have to do that you know like and her character i mean and her performance is like you know, very strongly a character who will not take that. Yeah. You know, where she's like, doesn't have an opinion, doesn't have a will and all that. So like, I mean, she's quiet, like the character's quiet, but she's not without her own sense of morality and direction and everything. So, yeah. And when she, when she finally lets loose, she really yeah. lets loose. There's a scene where she just lay, you know, lays into Sean Penn and then slams the door 
And I've watched uh-huh. the movie. I mean, I remembered what, that I felt this the first time I watched it because each time I've watched it since, I have the same feeling. When she slams that door, I am so afraid for her fingers. She, like, her, <laughs> if you watch that scene, she is still holding that door. She's slamming it really hard, and it just seems like she pulls her fingers through at the last second. And it just, it gives the, like, it's a, it's a, uh, it's great editing uh, on Phil Jonowa's part to notice that and keep that the last the last thing because boy did it does it it i don't know for me the the whole her whole character is someone who is trying to pull that magic act of someone who is trying to get out of something without having her you know without having a part of her cut off uh maybe totally not intentional that that's how that scene ends i'm sure but it was intentional to end to choose that cut and I don't know, did you yeah. notice that? I did not notice that. Ooh, I worry about fingers. Have you ever slammed your fingers in anything? Yeah, I have, but never deliberately. Yeah, no, no, never deliberately. I'm just kidding, I'm just kidding. <laughs> okay, well, let's... Uh, are there any other general things to say about this film? I guess I should ask you, when did you... You say that you watched it on videotape. When was no, DVD. A DVD. When when did you first watch State of Grace? Oh, you know, it was like five years ago. Oh, you know. Four? Four? <laughs> I don't know. One of those. Um, but yeah, I just... I mean, I'm a, an Ed Harris boy. Oh, yeah. Because, because Ed heads, we all meet once a month at the taco place. Um, but... Hold forth. Yeah. Like, get, get, tell us the gospel of Ed, because this comes at a really exciting time for him. This is... The same year, or right? No, the the first film after The Abyss, which was his first really big announcement to the world of this is a movie star. The the promo that said this brilliant theater actor is now a movie star. This is the film he chose to do right after. So tell us about the about the greatness of Ed Harris. Well, the thing I love about him is that you know, like when the eighties came around, like the kind of the the seventies, like bumpy, unattractive, like, you know, exploded face look has, was kind of passe. Like you didn't get a lot of Lee Marvin's or Charles Bronson's in leading roles. Like pretty people came back and Ed Harris is not an unattractive man. He's a good looking guy, but like he looks like a person who lives on the earth and not a person who lives in Hollywood, you know, like, and he reacts to things in a natural human way. And, you know, this is at a time when, you know, things were getting back into like a Richard Gere sort of lead. And I think it was Ed Harris's first movie where he has dialogue is that movie uh, Borderline with Charles Bronson and Wilford Brimley. And it's like in the credits, like introducing Ed Harris, like they knew he was going to be a thing, you know, because if you have a character playing like a supporting role, you don't often say like, and so-and-so like, you know, a little special, you know, champion <laughs> credit. And they did with him, and he was already Ed Harris. Like, he was already, like, looked kind of pissed off and exhausted and thin hair and everything. Like, you know, he just looks like he looks. And, like, he started there. You know what I mean? Like like how Wilfred Bowman was born 50 years old. Ed Harris was born, like, divorced, you know? So I really appreciate, <laughs> you know, like, that. that's what I love about him. And uh, like a woman I know worked at this library once. This Russian woman came in, and she said, you know, do you rent movies? And libraries often do. They said yes. And she was very Russian. And she says, I want movies, Ed Haradadis. And she said, like, five R's. And Ed Haradadis was Ed Harris. 
And uh, she was a, like an old Russian woman that was obsessed with him and like wanted to see everything he'd ever done because he captures, you know, I think he captures people's attention because he just seems like somebody that would have taught you workshop in junior high or something, but you know, he's very authentic. It's I, I, so a couple things, first of all, borderline was not his first. He has a pretty, I don't know, pretty awesome introduction to film and TV before that. Uh, so his, in 1976, he was in a, in 77, he's in a couple of forgettable TV series, Gibbsville, Del Vecchio, a TV movie called The Amazing Howard Hughes, but he made his film debut in 1978 as pathology resident number two in Coma, a film uh-huh. we've discussed on the this uh, show before, uh, I think in Michael the episode Crazy, about The Island. Yeah, we were talking about how it's influ- one of it is being one of the many influences on the milkshake of a film that is The Island. But that really kicked things off for him because after Coma... He does an episode of the Rockford Files, which I really want to find that now. I feel like he's you're right, like you're right, you're kind of right. He's always been well, got a it's Rockford like Files fan there too. Yes. Uh, oh yeah, big time. I mean, Ed Harris looks like doesn't he look like he should be in the Rockford Files? Oh yeah, for sure. And he probably was wasn't playing a a young man. I mean, he may have been playing, but a young bald man definitely. Yeah, or balding. Then he he's in a film, a TV series I would have loved to have seen, and maybe I did as a kid because it's 1978. David Cassidy, Man Undercover. Uh, oh yeah. <laughs> are you familiar with this? I'm familiar with its existence. I've not seen episodes, but it came out at the same time as a similar show called Richie Breckelman, Private Eye. <laughs> so it was a really weird time for like young, floppy-haired detectives. But then he was in Barnaby Jones, The Seekers, a film called a- The Aliens Are Coming. Oh, I wonder that's if that's the one about uh, the f- making of War of the Worlds. Nope. Nope. It's, no. No, it is not. Uh, and that's, that's when he does Hotchkiss, where he plays Hotchkiss in Borderline from 1980. But I think... But mm- I, oh, go on. I, I, there's a credit that says introducing Ed Harris. Like, for whatever reason, the producers really wanted to, like, Count themselves as the men who discovered this. Yeah. You know. Well, he was also a big theater guy. So this whole time, he was probably doing really interesting stuff in the New York theater world that made it so that that was a like a cool introduction. It's not just sort of like, oh, here's this guy we like. It's like, oh, here's this great theater actor, and this is the first time we're giving him a role. Right. But I think the films that really, I mean, I. The first time I really became aware of him was the right stuff. And yeah. this is he says he was in Under Fire, which I vaguely remember. I feel like 1983, 84, that's when I first became aware of Ed Harris. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I guess from and that it's a slow build from there to the abyss. And then after the abyss, he has just kind of been Ed Harris, this guy. But. Right. I feel like his, like him and like everyone in this film is at a very unique point of ripeness in their career. Uh-huh. You know, whether it's Robin Wright Penn right at the beginning of saying I'm I can go toe to toe with these guys, whether it's Ed Harris coming off of The Abyss, Sean Penn kind of at the height of his Sean Pennness 
I mean, it's right between, <laughs> I, I know how that sounded, uh, <laughs> uh, but it's right between Casualties of War and Carlito's Way. And I kind of okay. always imagined it as being a little bit earlier in his filmography, but that make this is, that sort of puts it at, he has already sort of conquered everything that he kind of needs to conquer as, not as an actor in terms of like all the roles and all the awards, but he's at a certain amount of, I don't know, his own, I don't know, power as an actor and as a star of this film. And he's kind of a weird star, which like going back to the Goodfellas comparison, you would think that the film starring Sean Penn would be more, be a bigger hit than the film starring Ray Liotta. Yeah, that that's time. true. That is true. That's a good point. Maybe that's part of what makes Ray, Ray Liotta so exciting. But the idea that Ray Liotta and Joe Pesci had the bigger film than uh, than all of these stars, Sean Penn, Ed Harris, Gary Oldman, we haven't even talked about, who is probably the greatest. I mean, I think when you the first time you watch this film, you come away thinking about him and that performance, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, everyone does well, although I'm going to make some new enemies here and say that Gary Oldman is like such a ham. It's, it's hilarious to me. Like, I feel like he's almost always in his own movie. Like, like Nicholas Cage in Deadfall. I feel like that's Gary Oldman in everything. <laughs> well, but, it, but it kind of in this film, it definitely works to, yeah. for me. And I think also, so at this point in his career, we hadn't quite figured that out. So, I hear what you're saying. Like I see that now in retrospect, but at the time, the impact of it was, okay, we got Sid and Nancy, then we got Prick Up Your Ears, then there's like three or four films that I've seen since, but I hadn't seen, and so this was the next thing for him after that, and this role is so different than his Joe Orton or his Sid Vicious, and... He's just such a wild card. And yeah, he is, you know, it's right. He is kind of like Nicolas Cage in Deadfall. And I love that <laughs> performance. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like, they, they do they both cackle like Mad Men? Because they both do. I think, I, so. I, think the, I, I noticed he did a lot of cackling. So not not the biggest Gary Oldman fan. Uh, no, I just, well, I, I like him when he's used correctly. But like, you know, I could say the same thing about like, you know, dental anesthetic, but it's like, I don't want to have it every day, you know? So. Is there an actor other than Ed Harris that you want to have every day? Oh yeah. There's tons. I mean, Ed Harris is a big one. I mean, Timothy Carey, who's an over actor as well, but like he's one that I can take a big spoonful of. Well, maybe Um, if you own, if we only got as much Gary Oldman as we got of Timothy Carey, we'd like, we'd appreciate it more. Um, I, that's probably true. I just, you know, you see a movie also, it's like how much he's in the movie. It's like how much, you know, vanilla extract you put in the cookies. Like it's good, but don't wreck it. Um, like in the professional, which I just think is a big steamy turd of a movie. Um, he's unbearable. Like it's ridiculous Mm. that he was in that movie. (laughs) Like that performance is like a crime against humanity. Oh my goodness. Well, I mean, Probably not. I mean, maybe a misdemeanor. Yeah, I just said crime. (laughs) 
Um, okay, okay. Well, you know, we're not going to be giving as much celebration. Uh, on from my standpoint, this this film earned Gary Oldman uh, my growing esteem at the time, and my take on Gary Oldman. Until recently, I have to say, like at, I, my feelings towards him shifted around the time of Churchill. That was the mm-hmm. first time I started to find him boring. So I, I'm not on the same page that you are. I like him. When an actor is good enough to fill that much space, I think a film is lucky to have it. As you say, when it's used well, I, I've only seen The Professional once, but I remember... You know, just being, you know, just loving it. It's like watching Peter O'Toole act. Like, it's that kind of thing. Yes, it's big, but come on, let's enjoy. Anyway, not to take away your your point of view on it, but that was, that's sort of my take. But I also generally, I base my like for an actor on the times when it works. So, you know, if I was making a list of my favorite Gary Oldman, there would be five or ten things on it. And that's enough to keep me interested until the next one. Although, although now we have Gary Oldman getting older and getting kind of, you know, he's still good, but he's not, you know, he's not, he's not surprising. He doesn't have the energy to destroy a film the way he used to. Now it just sort of sits in it like it's a tub of lukewarm water. <laughs> like, is that's a scene from Winston Churchill I'm channeling. Anyway, so not so big on Oldman's performance. What about the, the star of the film, Sean Penn? Oh, it's very, it's really good, but it's funny because he has the same sort of like dour, frustrated personality that he has in At Close Range, which is around the same time. You know? Also featuring R. D. Call, who plays Pat, the stone faced killer in the the film. Um, yeah, uh, is it? I need to go back it- and see At Close Range again. I haven't seen it in many many years. That's probably. There's probably some truth to that. Although he's still very much a teenager. He has that teenager baby fat face thing going in at close range. And in this, this is why I feel feel like he's kind of doing sort of the Elvis Bono. Right. That's dark, but yeah. While, you know, while uh, Gary Oldman's doing the sort of greasy rock star Bono. Yeah. Which Bono like is, Ed, is Ed Harris doing? <laughs> he's doing the Larry Mullen, maybe? Just... He's doing, yeah, no, he's just doing like, you know, Bono Shifkowitz, who's my accountant. That's the one that he's doing. Uh, Robin Wright, which Bono is she doing? <laughs> Pro Bono. Pro Bono, yeah. <laughs> it's like Sean's in it. Uh, I'm not pregnant. I'm going to do this movie. I say that because when I was reading the, the her Wikipedia around this time, she had to turn down several big pictures because she was pregnant oh. with a baby pen. And uh, yeah, so maybe that's why she was so got so mad at Sean Penn in this movie and, and slammed that door, imperiling her fingers. I guess the, 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 the Atlas range thing, the comparison is just like that movie's more seething. And like you said, like more like young, you know, but and it's still just like him, like this hating where he is, hating everyone around him, hating what he has to do. You know, there's a lot of him just be like bearing the weight of everything. And that's the character, you know? What, the thing that I found kind of neat about this character is 
that he's kind of like he's really bad at his job. He's he doesn't yeah. know how he really like uh, the films about cops do going undercover into the mob. Usually those guys do a better job of keeping their secret. Sean Penn is going around in this movie telling people who he is over and over again, really early into this assignment. And, and like when he melts down, we didn't mention yet the guy who puts, um, maybe I, I probably did mention it in my, in my uh, breakdown of the film before, but the person who puts Sean Penn up for, up to this gig is John Turturro in kind of the first year of, I don't know, John Turturro becoming John Turturro. This is the same year as Miller's Crossing, this is right after Ugh. Do the Right Thing and Mo Better Blues. And right. so, that, again, so here he is showing up just as we're getting to know him. And we don't really, you know, we're not coming to it with John Turturro baggage other than this guy is terrifying. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and Wait, when, was, yeah. when was Five Corners? That was before that. That was that was the first time I became. I feel like I became aware of him, but that was because I feel like that's because I was an actor, paying attention to that kind of thing. I don't feel like most right. people know that film, but it's great. Yeah, he's he's like he carries the movie after a point. Yeah, he's a real. That's the most we don't know what this guy is capable of badass yeah. that he ever played. But yeah. uh, but I was gonna say so the scene where Sean Penn is on the subway breaking down to John Turturro and he's like, you're just such a fucking pussy. Why? You, you know, I thought you Irish guys were tough. He's like, we're not t- tough. We're crazy. Uh, <laughs> I got the, the, It's just, I just like, cause it's oddly in this film, it seems kind of heroic how much he betrays himself. It's the film sets him up. So it does seem kind of heroic, but it's also kind of pathetic. And, Weird, just not what you usually get from these movies. This film isn't interested in keeping any secrets. It is interested in watching people uh, move across a wide screen. Uh, I, What do you think about the way this film looks? Well, there's a lot of stuff that actually stands out to me about it, like, which is like the end when they're in the bar and everything is just lit through like, the beams of light coming through the windows. Mm-hmm. You know, like it looks like the place is like you know, you know, part of a ghost town. Like it's never hasn't been opened in thirty years. You know, and that seems all shot that way. Like it's kind of dreamlike, or almost. I was gonna say music video ish, but that's not because of his YouTube connection. But um, yeah, yeah, like there's that stuff that just feels like very, uh, you know, natural and verite, but like. You know, a lot of it, I mean, none of it feels as stylized as Goodfellas. Like, style, you know, so many, like, cameras whipping around and, like, music cues and, like, you know, it's funny. And 3 O'Clock High has all of that stuff. Yeah. You yeah. know, and so it's it's kind of interesting that he makes the mob movie after that that isn't even one-tenth as stylized as Goodfellas was. Yeah. Yeah, there's something to to me. There's something about this that is just much more concerned with being. Well, especially considering Jonah's career afterwards, which I have, I I've not tracked entirely, but things didn't really. This would this definitely was his high water mark. Things did not yeah. go 
particularly well for him after this. And this is such a statement of like, I am mature. Mm-hmm. And maybe there's, maybe it's a phony maturity because I don't, it don't, I don't feel like he, he carried that into his next films, but it's a really great impression of maturity. And I buy it, you know, it, whatever it is, yeah, there's, there isn't a false note in this. And I, we can talk about it. There are, he is a, he is a, f- a filmmaker who is capable of false notes in when he's working with Richard Gere or Alec Baldwin, but somehow with this, this was the right film for him to make. I love like for me the look of it like the, just when people are driving in cars, the way he can he makes a car fill up the whole widescreen of it. It just has this really epic scope for a very small movie. Like you said at the beginning, it's not really an epic. It's very contained. But within uh-huh. that container, the view is kind of an epic view. Yeah. And, you know, for all our, my old man bashing, it's like he he does use him appropriately. You know, like he does. You know, he doesn't overdo it. Like he knows what to do with all of these personalities and characters, some of whom are huge, some of whom are understated, like Ed Harris. Um you know, who's like in pretty sedate, like usually when, when you have somebody who's like the head of the family or like the, you know, crime lord in a movie, that's the person who's giving the biggest performance in the movie. And in this one, it's like Sean Penn and Ed Harris are like in a race to be almost the most sedate versions of the stereotypes of those characters. Yeah. Which it makes it more effective when they do freak out. Like there's that great, great part um, in like towards the end at the funeral Right. Yeah. Where he realizes that he's been betrayed, and Ed Harris is like, oh. eyes just kind of bug out for a second. He's just like, and he's like, I'm an idiot. You know, I mean, he's he can't freak out. He says, That's what he, it's great. He hands him. It, so this is one of those moments. So Sean Penn is so mad about the this murder that he goes up to to Ed Harris, the boss, and hands him his uh, his cop ID and says, "You see how smart you are here," which is just kind yeah. of like a it's suicide. It's a dumb. It's it is this should not like somehow that beat should not work, but these actors and the whole film sets it up so okay, I I'm right there, and then you're right. I even wrote made a note about it. Ed Harris's reaction and his line his line is he just he, you see his eyes bug out and he's just like, He's dead, he's dead, he's dead. He's uh Ed Harris is great. I you get no argument for me there. I oh that was my one argument. He doesn't look like humans. Ed Harris is one of the most sort of beautiful and odd looking men. He looks kind of like Fred Astaire and Henry Fonda. Like he's one of those beautiful skull heads. Right. He, he does not look like he's like Humphrey Bogart. He does not look like a normal person. He looks like a, a not, but he does, he's not pretty, but he is a, tr- like a truly beautiful, odd alien thing. Right. Yeah. It's just like you made him sound like he was Ernest Borgnine or something. <laughs> well, that would be the highest praise I could give <laughs> well, him. Well, who is also a really odd, beautiful, like, he does. people don't really look like Ernest Borgnine either. I don't know. Who is a, who is a, re, a truly average-faced movie star? I, can you be an um, average-faced? Maybe Robert Forrester, okay, okay. kind of? Um, no, um, from Brazil. Uh, Jonathan Price. Jonathan, yes, yes. Jonathan Price is an average-faced movie star. 
He's yeah. an average faced man. Like he absolutely he totally is. Yeah. And honestly, if you're gonna be talking about contemporary people, who's that little dude that looks like a pepper shaker that's in like the Avengers movies and Jeremy Renner? <laughs> he looks like a pepper shaker. Yeah, he's just like this little cylinder of a man with like no neck and no expression. And yet he's like the lead in movies sometimes. Yeah, okay. Yeah. I think Jonathan Price is a little bit more normal looking, but I I see where you're going. But now compare Jonathan Price to Ed Harris. And that's the difference between being a normal looking person and being a strange theatrical god. Like not in not a guy like like in that in a in a pantheon of many, he definitely is one of those people who you're like, yeah, I don't know. Anyway, enough about fetishizing Ed Harris's beautiful skull head. Uh, there's another actor in this movie who, when you're watching this movie, as you're watching this, did you have that the experience of like, holy shit, he's in this, he's in this? John C. Riley shows up. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, and I didn't actually look at where this sits in his career, but I figure it's just in that time when he was just doing a ton of, well, it's, it's pre the film. He did the first, uh, the, um, hard eight. It's pr- just right. before hard eight and the whole PT Anderson thing, which is kind of where John C. Riley went from being that guy who's in all those movies to uh-huh. being John C. Riley. Right. But he did a whole bunch of those for like four or five years, it seemed like he was always showing up as the bumbling cop or the, you know, ineffective husband or the you know, just the the third or fourth or fifth or sixth guy in a movie. And he has that in this, but he is heartbreaking. He's a very sad performance. Oh, definitely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's and it's funny because he hasn't like, you know, you see actors sometimes in movies before they've fallen into their shtick. Like when you see like a young movie, like a young James Coburn movie and you're yeah. just like but oh, you haven't turned into that guy you haven't turned into like it, it's me james coburn you haven't like turned into that guy yet you know what right. i mean like you're still like you're still just an actor like trying to fill an, somebody else's role instead of turning the role into you and so it's fun to say because like, john c Riley does have a shtick you know now it's like like oh i don't quite know what's going on but i'm gonna do my best like it's like that's what he does and um in this movie i mean he's still kind of that way but it's like he's not playing john c Riley playing a character He's just playing the character. I, li- I like to see people in those phases. Yeah. Yeah. Do you, and, and you felt like he, he did his, he did his, he came off well in this film for you? Yeah. I mean, nothing in this movie did not work. Actually, you know, this is crazy. This is, this is really, really early in his career. I, I was wrong. Uh, so, this is 1990. His first film credited was 1989, and he was in Casualties of War with Sean Penn. And oh, then wow. he's in We Are No Angels with Sean Penn. So he was Sean Penn's wife between Madonna and Robin Wright. Right. Yes. Okay. He yeah. was Sean Penn's divorce wingman dude. And then he's in Days of Thunder, and then he's in State of Grace. Wow. And yeah. then he's in Shadows and Fog. Wow, he just really, he does not, he, it's kind of crazy. Uh, let me just listen, list these films, because they're, all these other ones, I have to skip over a bunch, because there's a bunch that nobody wants to talk about, but 
Casualties of War, We're No Angels, Days of Thunder, State of Grace, Shadows and Fog, Out on a Limb that I don't really know, but then he's in Hoffa, What's Eating Gilbert Grape, The River Wild, Dolores Claiborne, Georgia, Hard Eight, and then he's off to the races. Wow. Yeah, I mean, that, that whatever agent he yeah. had at gunpoint really did a good job for him. Yeah. Yeah, well, there you go. Are there any other... Oh, one of the other things that's interesting about this film is the writer, this is their only film they've ever wrote. Dennis really? McIntyre. And in my mind, Phil Janua is on tour with you 2 and this is some guy coming up and being like, I've got an Irish mob story for you. Right. I, this is the story of my life here. You know, <laughs> and... And Phil Jonowa had the good sense to be like, yeah, this, because this is a really, you're a screenwriter. What do you think about this script? I mean, really judging critically, because I'm just, I'm in my love fest with it. I mean, it's, it's, there's, there's no bullshit. There's nothing there that is set up to make something else more convenient. It doesn't need that. It doesn't have a necessary twist, which is like the greatest gift a movie can give me, because I hate that. And it's so prevalent, especially in movies about crime and, everything you know it's like oh your your wife is actually the grandmother of the guy who runs the other gang you're like oh you know it's just all that stuff is always so unnecessary because really what draws you to these movies and like what makes the characters interesting is not that so i like a movie that doesn't have all that shit and uh it just you know the characters are all fleshed out enough to have their own identities and their own you know like tragic (laughs) like failures and yeah, it just it really works. But I do like that it is so contained. Like it all takes place, you know, over a couple blocks of the, you know, the the wharf area, and like it just feels like it feels it feels real for that. You know, it doesn't feel like a play. Like sometimes, like yeah, no, not far. at all. No, this highly cinematic film, which as you said, within a very small place. It's funny because my experience of the film you're describing it correctly it's just not my experience i don't feel like this is a film that i would describe as contained i would because just pe- people sitting around has this odd epic feel like i can just i can go through like there's just these massive set pieces like you talked about the end shootout mm-hmm. juxtaposed with this big irish st patrick's day march and so you have that music. It gets super Irish at the end, which I can't yeah. tell if I was I mean, if I'm Irish. Do I think, oh, this is great or oh, this is fake? I don't know. Uh, I, I will leave it to our Irish listeners to to write in and, and tell me what their experience is of this film. But so there's that. And then there's this great, super tense, very filmmakery kind of set piece where Ed Harris is meeting with the mob boss played by a character actor whose first role was in this film and would go on to play a lot of mob bosses, Joe Vitarelli. So he owes some, he owes a little bit of his career to Phil Janua. I mean, he's passed on now, so, I mean, all debts are canceled. But, in, you know... Well, I'm should... blaming that on Phil Janua, too. Okay, so. well, then you also got to give him credit for Analyze This. Because, uh, <laughs> sorry, that maybe you don't. Anyway, point being, so Ed Harris is having a sit-down while the gang... Is, knows that they have to come and get him 
if it goes past a certain time. And Phil Jonawa, who loved working with clocks in three o'clock high, has a lot of fun with clocks and intercutting and just building the tension. And I feel like that scene's a great one. Maybe not even because of how it's set up, but just every shot is so beautiful. Like the scene of them about to take down, to burst in, and then the way that's stopped has just such great cinema energy. I really love that. Uh, I'm trying to think there's a couple of other really just excellent little filmmakery moments through it that brought me a, a, a great deal of joy. A lot of the showdowns between the characters, even though they're in rooms, they feel much bigger than that. Kind of like the, the subtlety of her almost tearing off her fingers when she slams the door. Like, I feel like there's moments like that all throughout this. So you just have all of these actors. I feel like they just have been, they just must have been acting up a storm and inspiring the hell out of Janua and vice versa. You know, who knows? Maybe you two are hanging out on the set. And so they all just feel like rock stars. There's something going on with this movie where I don't know, because because he didn't ever do it again. Well, the, the whole movie runs on that tension between the characters and their self-loathing. It's like the, the quiet parts are people hating themselves and the you know the parts that keep you totally riveted are the people like you know just dealing with each other and it's like and it, there's it, it's either one or the other I think the whole time like there's never a point of there, there anyone seems comfortable or hopeful <laughs> but that sounds depressing and it's not it's not a depressing movie oh we forgot the great cameo uh Alf Burgess Meredith. Oh yeah! Oh yeah! You're right. I did forgot. And that is a that's a great scene. You can tell they they knew they had one great scene for a great older actor, and uh-huh. uh, it was great to see Burgess Meredith in this. I don't think I appreciated it at the time, but seeing him get this great scene where he gets to say what what is his what is his great line? Something about an old man who was just eating soup. Yeah, what was it? I'm eating stewed. He's like, he's trying to make himself seem weak because he's just spilled the beans about something to Sean Penn. And he's like, I'm in, I'm eating stewed tomatoes out of a can. Like, just right. Leave me alone. I'm an old like, man. Like, I have nothing left to offer Look life. At or me. Look at me. I'm eating stewed tomatoes out of a can. What kind of, like, what threat could I be to anybody? And that scene, oh. Yeah, that's that's a great one. I think that reminds me of a scene with Burgess Meredith in that 92 in the Shade movie, but it's actually William Hickey who gets so irritated with Burgess Meredith that he says, get out of here before I shit myself and die on purpose. <laughs> <laughs> it's one of the most insane lines in a movie ever. Burgess Meredith is a, he's a, he's a, he's not a great guy in that movie. No, he's a jerk. He's a racist. Yeah. But, yeah. Uh, you know, but... That's you, you need Burgess Meredith around to, to carry the weight of those kind of roles. And then when he gets, you know, killed by Mr. T and Rocky Theory, it's only going to unfortunately probably make him even more guarded towards people of color. So it's just a, a bad road that Meredith is on at that point. Uh, since you brought it up, Rocky Three or Rocky Four? Rocky Four. Oh no! Rocky Four above Rocky oh, One. No, no. Rocky no. Four above all Rockies. Oh, see now we. This is where we. This is where we part critical company on this one. I am. I'm, a, I'm fully. <laughs> I'm fully on Rocky Three. I, every Rocky Three has everything to me. Rocky Three. It's. I don't know. I don't. I, the, 
it's odd that I have so many favorite Rocky movies because I don't really think of myself as being a Rocky fan. But Rocky three, Rocky one, a lot of the later actually Rocky. I don't. I really don't like Rocky four. I'm sorry. You're you're the guest. Hold forth on why you love it. I'll. I mean, this has nothing. Brutus Meredith isn't even in it, so this is so tangential that. Yeah. Do we even need to? I do even want there. to get? Uh, I don't. No, I don't. <laughs> but but I feel <laughs> like I'd be rude if I didn't. If I opened that door and then shut you down because you didn't agree with me, so. No, it's fine. We can talk about it a different time. There's a lot of people who love Rocky Four. There's a yeah, Rocky Four is I the think, Halloween three of the Rocky movies. Yeah, sure. Listeners to the buy. listeners to the show will know that I don't really watch horror films. So, well, Halloween three is the one that a lot of people hate because it didn't have Michael Myers in it. Um, but I consider it to be the best of the Halloween movies. So, are you also a Nightmare on Elm Street two fan? Yes, I am. Good but for not you. as much as three. Three is the best one. Three is the best one. I agree. I we're in agreement on that. <laughs> but I would say that Nightmare on Elm Street four, the Dream Master, is the Rocky four of the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise, yeah. and that is to say that it's not as good as Nightmare on Elm Street three, the Dream Warriors. <laughs> but it does. Ha- it does have the best martial arts scene in any of the Nightmare on Elm Street films. Uh if that's true, maybe, maybe, but definitely it has the greatest bathroom humiliation scene in all of the Nightmare on Elm Street movies. Yeah, you're right. It does. <laughs> um, maybe one of the top 10 bathroom humiliation scenes of all time. Maybe. I don't know. Yeah, I haven't done I the love, math on that. I, I, that. That seems great. Leather Daddy, Jim Coaches to the front. Uh, actually... This brings up an odd synchronicity for me that I realized a strange and sad kinship that I have with this film. You want to know what it is? What? So Phil John was his time period of success in Hollywood is exactly the same as my own. (laughs) And I can judge, but it's like I, I was working pretty regularly from 1987 to 1990 and then whatever stuff happened some it makes me think i'd love to sit down with phil janua and we can compare notes which is worse to fall from a great height or to just fall (laughs) (laughs) uh but but watching this film there there was i just had this odd sense of like something happened in 1990 there was a gate and neither I nor Phil Janua was was ready was ready or able to walk through it. And uh, do you, have you seen any of his later films after State of Grace? I don't think I have. Um, I watched a few of them. Would you like to to hear a brief rundown of the uh, the fall from the State of Grace of Phil Janua? Um, sure. It's now. First of all, I want to be clear. He has had, I mean, he's probably doing just fine. Uh, he, uh-huh. he did a lot. He's, he's worked, he continues to work with you two and they love him and he loves them. And that's probably a great thing. And I haven't seen his film Entropy, which I, the only reason I haven't watched it yet is because I'm so excited to see it that I actually, and I'm, I'm maybe I'm building it up, but I think it might actually be really, really good. Um, it's a film with Stephen Dorff, a guy who huh. is 
regularly in odd films that that I kind like he he's great in Blood and Wine. He's an actor who I think at the time of this I saw more as competition, so I didn't really appreciate him. But now when I go back to this era, I feel like he's one of the great young actors. Maybe too pretty, like you said, he's too much like a pretty boy, but. He kind of, I feel like he transcends that in enough films that he's interesting. And I did see uh, there's an early ish rock film of The Rock called Gridiron Gang, where he teaches a bunch of juvenile delinquents to play football. And it's a lot better than that sounds. And I think that's because uh, Phil Jonawa brings some of the game that he brought to State of Grace. To it, like there's a way it has a really great contain. It's a contained story that has a kind of epic scope because of the way that the film is directed. But it doesn't. It's uh, it's not as good a film, but it is way better than the two that I that really depressed me, which were Heaven's Prisoners and. Um, Final Analysis. Final Analysis, the film with uh, his film with Richard Gere and Kim Basinger. Ugh. Oh, right. And then, and then the then one with Alec Baldwin, and maybe also Heaven's Prisoner. I think maybe is Kim Basinger also in that one too. Uh, no, Kelly Lynch and Kim Bas. Ugh. Oh boy, yeah. These movies. I really those films. Have you seen either of them? No, I haven't. Let's not talk about them. It's it's sad. Okay. It's sad. They. Um, if someone watches them and wants to write in and tell us something good about them, that's great. But I can't find it. I really think they are. It, they just lack any. They, yeah. This is not to be a negative show. So, right. Sorry if you love these films, and I'm even more sorry if listening to this made you want to watch them. Um, yeah, I guess are we getting? Well, I guess we're kind of getting to the end of our state of grace discussion. Are there any other points about this film, Phil Janua, the crime genre of films of the '90s? Maybe that's a thing. Like this, you're kind of a crime film expert. Well, yeah, but I love the '70s type crime film, and I really don't like the post-Tarantino stuff. Like. I, it's the worst. Well, this is like pre. <laughs> this is right before the Tarantino thing happened. Oh, I know. Yeah, I know exactly. So I like that era of like when the '90s stuff is like emulating the kind of sad, you know, alcoholic, depressed '70s style of like you know, like Friends of Eddie Coyle and all that. Because you can see a lot of that type of feeling in this movie. And then, but then in the '90s, I'm like action became like the new, you know, basically then um, action and crime films became influenced by music videos and spawned, you know horseshit masters like Guy Ritchie and stuff like that's when it took a dark turn and crime movies you know were definitely changed that way so I appreciate when they were not like that like I think Miller's Crossing is the best of the Coen Brothers movies like of all of them like that was my favorite you know so it's just this whole yeah era so are there other from that others from that era that really stand out to you the like like I guess we're talking about, like, so pre-Reservoir Dogs to whatever is post-70s. Maybe post, like, yeah, I guess, like, post-70s. 
So 85 to 91. When you say crime, do you mean like crime family or do you just mean like thrillers in general? Like would The Boys Next Door count? The Penelope Spears movie with, you know, Maxwell Caulfield and... um, Oh, well, however you, you know, however you want to, however you want to take it. Charlie Sheen did some interesting ones. Like there's that No Man's Land movie, which nobody watches and it's not perfect, but it's like, it's a really sad crime movie, you know, where it's just like, you know, uh, basically Charlie Sheen just hates himself so much that he's just like trying to sabotage his life in the crime family. They're doing stuff that will inevitably get him killed, you know? And it's like, that's an interesting movie and it's different. And it's, it's, um, an organized crime movie in LA, which you don't realize how unusual that is. Like it's like, cause they always, for some reason chose the East coast or Chicago in those movies. It's like every damn movie is made in LA except for those typically. Um, and no man's land is very much like a Hollywood crime family movie. And I also like, this is a really boneheaded movie, but it's fascinating to me is on um, next of kin which was sold as a Patrick Swayze movie, but it's really like Liam Neeson's movie, but he just wasn't famous yet. So they didn't really put him anywhere like in the credits or on the poster, but he's kind of the lead. <laughs> like He's great in it too. Hmm. He's a redneck going out to get vengeance against the mob. And the thing is, he doesn't understand that what organized crime means. He's like, someone killed my brother. It's like, yeah, but it was a mafia guy. So like, you've got to deal with 40 guys, you know, and he just doesn't get it. So he just like, wanders into this room with a shotgun and basically has to take on the entire mafia by himself. And it's, it's really fun and really stupid, but it's, it's great. And his sidekick is Michael J. Pollard. Oh, okay. How weird. Yeah. What a weird coupling. And, and Bill Paxton and Ben Stiller. And Bill Paxton playing the brother of Liam Neeson and Patrick Swayze, who is shot in the head by Ben Stiller at the beginning in a dramatic role. Wow. Okay. Yeah, in the beginning. So I just spoiled the beginning. I think it's okay, right? Yeah, yeah. Hey, you know, you don't want people to show up expecting to get a lot of Bill Paxton if uh, he's going to get offed at the the beginning and maybe knowing that he's getting offed by Ben Stiller. Oh, man, this era of film, it's just, it's so odd for me to to talk about. Uh, I was in acting class with Bill Paxton. Really? Uh, one of my good friends at this time was Andy Dick, who was friends with Ben Stiller. And Ben Stiller was his friend who I didn't know, who was, you know, the kid of some famous people. Um, right. And I don't really think of either of them that way much anymore because they became one on to other things. But at that time, Bill Paxton was almost more of a musician than he was an actor. He had a band yeah, called he, he, Martini Ranch. I believe. I remember Martini Ranch. Yeah. It was the duo. And it was funny because he had come from being in all the Barnes and Barnes videos and then did his own like silly new wave duo project. Yeah. So, so yeah, that just the, looking at these credits, credits opened up the odd year of 1989 for me. Yeah. Uh, next of kin. Maybe I should watch that. Are there any, again, you, I have the expert here. Any other, really excellent crime films in that odd period of the late eighties and early nineties. And it could be, you know, just like, I mean, both Goodfellas and state of grace and Miller's crossing. I don't, I'm sorry. This is not the answer to your question, but like, I just don't understand 
how the studio could have set, looked ahead on the forecast for the releases and said, oh, wait, there's a damn Martin Scorsese crime movie coming out. Like, let's give it a week. You know, like, how did that, what happened? Like, it just doesn't, I don't know, it's crazy to me. It's a weird synchronicity, that's for sure. But just move it, you know? It's just like, it's just crazy. Well, you know, I can relate because in 1989, I had a film coming out called Far From Home with a young actress named Drew Barrymore and Anthony Rapp and Matt Frewer. And I thought I was going to blow the doors off everything. Came out the same week as a little film called Batman. Now, I'm not crying about it. Maybe Phil Jonowa should just grow up and stop being a baby like John Turturro was telling Sean Penn in that subway. I thought you Irish guys were tough. Is Phil Jonowa Irish? I sure That's hope he is. Question. It would make me uh, feel better about how goddamn Irish this film is if I knew that he wasn't, you know, putting on, I don't know, shillelagh face. Yeah. As that, that's, like, a, that's a probably a terribly offensive phrase, phrase, and I'm sorry. I really like that term. I'm going to start using it. No shillelagh facing in this movie. Come on. Let's, get, let's be legit. Um, okay. Okay. Well, Zach, I, I, I think we have, uh, I think, I don't know if we've exhausted this film, but I think I've exhausted you. <laughs> and that's what matters. So. <laughs> I've no, rung you uh, out. You letting me sit in this sandbox with you, this little bathtub. I'm talking about a movie. Yeah, yeah, of course, of course. And is there anything that you'd like to direct our listeners' attention to in the way of things that you do in the world? Oh my God. Sorry, crime movie of that era. Sorry, this is this is what I want to direct people to. Okay. Worst, worst name for the best movie. It's like the most imbalanced of that of that equation. Um, but Miami Blues is like, oh really? Yeah, that's uh, Alec Baldwin, Jennifer Jason Lee, and Fred Ward. Yeah, who directed that? Uh, it was I know who wrote, it was based on a Charles Williford novel, but it was directed by. I don't remember. I should know this. It's somebody who I'm like, what else has he done that's good? And I look at his mark and I'm like, I don't want to watch any of those. But um, God, that movie is like perfect. It's, have you seen it? It's I, I have, but it's funny because I always associate it with Married to the Mob because they're oh. both early Alec Baldwin features. Yes. And so I was I, I always think that Jonathan Demi directed Miami Blues because right. I like it so much better than Married to the Mob. I, I do too. That I don't really like. Um, again, really maybe I would like it if I went back and saw it. Go on. I don't know. I, it's so unfortunate that it's called Miami Blues. It's so sad. Because it's amazing. That title is Duty. But yeah. Anyway. Yeah. What about, uh, what, what about the one with the... Jeff Bridges when it was in a bunch of, of sort of of movies around that time. How, are there any of his? Are you a, a, a fan of that era of Jeff Bridges? Um, I'm trying to think of which ones. Well, there's the what is it? Eight is it? Eight million ways to die in LA. Oh yeah, that one's not very good. Eh, you don't like it, huh? Okay, not a ton. 
Um, I guess there isn't any of those that really stand out to me. James I mean, Woods I like was Winter acting Kills. in a lot of films. What? I like Winter Kills, but oh, that's yeah. not a, like a that's, crime movie. That's no. like a, and that's a different yeah. era. That's a 70s, a great 70s paranoia yeah, assassination I film. I love yeah. that movie. It might be the, I think it's probably my favorite of that odd genre that I love. And Jeff Bridges breaks Anthony Hopkins' arm on camera in that movie. Yeah. And Anthony Hopkins acts right through it. Like, I'm sorry, Anthony Perkins. I'm a turd. It's Anthony you're right. Perkins. You're just Anthony Perkins. But you're not the first yeah. or last person to make that mistake, even on this show. Because I was the last person oh. to make this mistake right after you did. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, what about James Woods? He was acting in a bunch of... In fact, they were both oh, sure. in uh, the one with uh, Rachel Ward, Against All Odds. How about that? Yeah. Against All Odds is good, but I mean... I like James Woods, like even in bestseller, which is like a very imperfect movie. Like he's, Oh, that's so a real, I love that one. That's a good one. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I just, I like that a lot. So, oh, I was thinking of the hard way. Never mind. <laughs> Michael J. Fox. Yeah. I love that. <laughs> Making one. a joke. No, uh, I'm not. I actually really do love him in the hard way. Oh yeah. Um, no, bestseller is him and Brian Dennehy. I know. I, but I was, yeah. I was making a joke that I mistook it for the hard way, but I actually do really like him in the hard way. <laughs> I, I couldn't get into that one, but um, you, were you not not big on Michael J. Fox. Uh, I like Michael J. Pollard more than Michael J. Fox. They're related, right? Yeah, Michael J. Fox looks more like a normal human being than Michael. Yeah, J. I don't Pollard like that. Does. I don't like that in a person. <laughs> I th- that's how we all start. You started by saying that's what you love about Ed Harris. No, but when I say normal human being, I mean like a physically disappointing man. <laughs> and Michael J. Fox is too handsome. But Michael J. Pollard, like. If you rolled over in bed on the day after your wedding and saw it with Michael J. Pollard, you'd be sad. And that's what I want to see in an actor. <laughs> I think that might be our end. Like that, <laughs> this, is a, this has been a celebration of the physically disappointing man. That's what my entire life has been a celebration <laughs> of the physically disappointing man. So, yeah. Wow. Okay. Well, uh, may we all find our state of grace with our level of uh, disappointment. Yeah, okay. I, I think I think we're gonna. Um, there might be a sequel coming out. Of State of Grace. It seems like any minute now. They should have that together. What's that? There should be a sequel coming, right? Don't you think? It's a type of the movie. State of Grace. Or yeah. Do a whole franchise. Yeah. I mean, uh, they're all dead. I mean, <laughs> it, 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 State of Grace would just the the sequel would just be Robin Wright talking to a therapist and still be like not being able to let go of this whole thing while. Yeah. Uh, let's see who would be like, while some, while someone tries to drag her back into the Irish mob. Yeah, but she wasn't even a member of it. <laughs> like the Flannerys, it gets, it's like, you know, that would have been, it, the sequel would be just the Flannerys and it would be now the great actress that is Robin Wright as the new mob boss. Like she's Michael in the Godfather. Like she tried to get out. And in the interim, she is now back in, and now she's the crime boss. And uh, I don't know, Timothy Chalamet, you know, dis- has, <laughs> has a disfigured body in some way, so he can get over right. his non-disappointing face. I don't know. Yeah, I need that from him. Um, but maybe, uh, maybe instead, oh, I, you know, 
Well, let's let's give a little plug. I, I'm going to force a plug onto this. So you played a major role in the film directed by my co-host in Absentia. He wasn't in right. Absentia when he was making the movie. He was in his season Absentia in this episode. His film Make Popular Movies. Yes. And you play the Hollywood producer mm-hmm. in it. And um, by this point, when this comes out, it's possible that it will be at least being uh, submitted to film festivals. Right. And since, boy, that's whatever you're doing there, it's a little bit loud. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I was taking my teeth out. It's getting late. Oh, really? No. Uh, <laughs> so I, think I, I was getting a migraine pill because talking all of this crime has upset my oh, face. I thought talking about your the movie that you were in was making you stressed yeah. out. No. Uh, no, I just want to you know it's I I got a chance to see it. I think it's a I think it's a a really fun and uh, a film that I'm really looking forward to hearing you know, seeing other people see it and being able to talk about it, but Mm -hmm. it does feature, and I'm not talking about you or Brian, a truly magnificently disappointing man, a disappointing (laughs) looking man at the center of this film. What what Mm -hmm. is the name of this actor? Well, I think he's a beautiful man, but John Golson. Yes. And well, exactly in the same way in the Ed Harris. Yeah. Somewhere between Ed Harris and Ernest Borgnine. Yeah. Is John Golson. And, yeah, and a six foot sub. Yeah, and in those three. And I just feel like uh, since you have given sort of a celebration to mm-hmm. the to that to that screen archetype, when I was as I was going through my mental Rolodex, I was like, wait a second, you made a film with a wonderfully with someone who embodies that archetype wonderfully. I, somehow, when you say a disappointing looking man. It doesn't sound insulting, but when I say it, it sounds like it's an insult. So I, I want to not say it, but I, uh, but I do want to draw that connection. So people should run, don't walk to their nearest theater and demand that they somehow get a hold of a copy of Make Popular Movies and write into their to their favorite big Hollywood executive, like the one you played in the film, and say, "Make this John Golson a star." That's what we're hoping to do in our tragically, you know, unlikely way. <laughs> we're going to try to get him to be in a lot of movies. There is one scene in that film, not going to give it away, spoiler alert, but it lasts about eight minutes. And it is one of the, uh, yeah, I think it's one of the great achievements of cinema in the year uh, 2020. <laughs> yeah, there, there was only one take on that one, for sure. Yeah. So, and there were, yeah. I, you know, if you, some of you were out there saying, well, there weren't a lot of movies being made in 2020. And I, I would say, you know what, that's that speaks even more to the greatness of this film in that scene. They made it under impossible circumstances. It's so true. <laughs> so. It's the Fitzcarraldo of it film is. satires. The Pizza Corraldo. <laughs> OK, well, uh, well, thank you. For, for doing this, Zach. Thank you. Hi, I'm Brian. And I'm AJ. And we have a podcast called The Director's Wall. Examining a filmmaker's career, film by film. First up was M. Night Shyamalan, then Francis Ford Coppola, 
Who's next? Is there anything to this whole auteur theory? Find out on The Director's Wall. Subscribe via Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or your preferred listening platform. Buddy, you want some action on the big game? Maybe hit a parlay or two? Then listen to me, comedian Alex Pavona, and the hilarious Steve Sylvester, and my podcast, On Paper House Network. It's a fun look at the world of sports gambling. I'll bet the house, you'll love it. Buddy, what's the bet? With Alice Pavona, only on Paperhouse Network. Dear listener, if you are just discovering our podcast, you can find all of our episodes on our website at theworldiswrongpodcast.com. You can also write to us at contact at theworldiswrongpodcast.com or follow us on Instagram at theworldiswrongpodcast. And now, back to the show. Well, Brian, uh, what do you think about our our take on physically disappointing men and your film? Well, I, I I want to defend this this guy in my movie because I don't think he is. I never thought that. I think he's a beautiful man. I feel I'm a physically disappointing man. I that's me. I'll take the credit for that. I I I'm a real letdown. Um, but. But I, I mean, I get the point. I get what you're trying to say. I just wonder if there's a less mean way to make it sound. I know you don't mean you guys don't mean it to be mean, because like Ed Harris, I'm, you know, he, I, you know, yes, I understand his hair is thinning. He's could be anyway a physically disappointing man, but uh, but he's very handsome. So I don't I don't know. Like it it I don't think it's supposed to be mean, but it sounds mean. Physically disappointing <laughs> does not mean that you are not handsome, Alan Ladd was a physically disappointing man who was very, very <laughs> handsome. But I also feel just in the eye of the, you know, the person, like some people will look at Tom Cruise and think he is a physically disappointing man. He is. He sh- yes, he is. Then, he- who, then, who, is who, then who isn't? <laughs> isn't every man in their own way physically disappointed at ah, some point in their yes. life? Yes. Right? I think I that's think, what I we're think, onto. It's I like you're either you're... The, because as you get older, things sag, your hair falls out, like your belly gets bigger... Like even like Fabio someday will be a physically he maybe already is a physically disappointing man. Uh, but, I mean, I I bet but, if you meet I bet if you meet professional athletes, you are less like like I think actors are more likely to be physically disappointing men <laughs> than athletes. Like you're you're rarely are yeah, going to meet okay. a famous basketball player and you're like God, I thought you'd be taller. You know, <laughs> that doesn't happen. Yeah. But it, as I guess that, but I mean, with all actors, the shock is how short they all are. Like almost all of them, except for like Ed Begley Jr. Like or, whenever I've met a famous actor, I'm always like, oh, you're kind of tiny. I didn't expect that. It's either how short, and I should say not they, how short we are, uh, <laughs> or how big our heads are. I don't have the big, I don't have the big Hollywood yeah, that, head. But. Yeah, there's that weird thing where it's like, yeah, the tiny little body and the big head, which you don't realize till you see them in person either. You're like, oh, man, you are like small, but then your head is huge. Yeah. Just a weird, it's an interesting thing that like, yeah, a lot of actors. But then it's really shocking and exciting when they're really tall. Like when I saw Bill Pullman in person, he was like tall. And I was like, oh, wow, you're like 6'3 or whatever. Like, you just, ne- you just never know. Um, yeah. <laughs> so we're we're talking about the the star of your film John Colson is does he have a a massive head? 
<laughs> no, he just is a normally normal proportioned man. There's no one in my movie that had a weird big head, except for maybe me in the, <laughs> in the scene that I'm in. Zach's head is kind of big. Is it? I think he's got he's got big features. He's got yeah, big features. I, his his face really the, jumps off the yeah. screen. <laughs> but also, it's not fair to him. I put the camera like right next to his head, so definitely, if you see it on the in the theater, it'll seem very big. <laughs> but, I don't. I, I, I don't know. I, I think it's I, a good thing. Why is it unfair? You made his head look bigger I, I than it is. That's a. I, I've I, never heard a director <laughs> apologize for giving an actor too many close-ups before. That's. <laughs> it wasn't fair. I put the camera right on his face. <laughs> Well, I, I don't like to pick apart people's looks. You know, that's not my... We're not picking apart. Game. We're celebrating. <laughs> We're celebrating <laughs> the the archetype of the physically disappointing male. And I think, we can all, I think we've made the point that we can all relate to it. I this mean, is true. Maybe, yeah. yeah, maybe Aaron Judge of the New York Yankees doesn't have to deal with it. He will when he gets older. But, you know, but for now... <laughs> He gets to enjoy that, <laughs> although he doesn't, because they, they just lost. We're recording this in October. But, You're a baseball well, but, fan, so. But thanks for your kind words about my movie, and I, I too hope that people will see it, uh, you know, in a few months. So what is the name of this it. movie again? You should say it as many times as you can. It is called Make Popular Movies, and uh, the goal is to have it done by early 2022 to a film festival near you. So, yeah, it's 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 great. It's a great movie. And I'm not just saying that because I made it. It really is the greatest film of all time. <laughs> well, you might. Uh, I don't. I don't believe in the, there being a greatest film of all time. But I will give you that there were moments when I was watching this movie that I would not have chosen to watch any other movie during that <laughs> segment when I was laughing, you know, hysterically at it. Good. Maybe it'll be up for an Oscar. Who, who knows? Well, if it Actually, doesn't, it'll, get, it'll, if, it'll, <laughs> don't don't rule out your Oscar chances. True. Okay. Well, uh, <laughs> if you if you happen to be Great. a physically disappointing man, someone who loves a physically disappointing man, or someone who has never been disappointed in the physicality of any man. Please write to us at contact at the world is wrong podcast.com. Correct us, chastise us, uh, compliment us, and make us feel better about our disappointing physicality. Whatever, whatever, uh, whatever you're inspired to do. You can also find us on Instagram at the world is wrong podcast where we post videos from the movies that we cover here. We do not pic- post pictures of our own disappointing physicality. And uh, if you want to be truly disappointed, come find us on Twitter, not because what we post is so disappointing, but just because the whole enterprise is a disappointment. And (laughs) that's where you can find me complaining and liking things and, you know, just trying to, to keep off some activity there. And next week we are going to be, what are we going to be doing, Brian? Next week, we're... Go- what are we doing next week? We're going to the desert planet. <laughs> oh, that's of- right. Of Dune. David Lynch's Dune. And uh, I picked it because the new Dune is coming out, so I figured it's time to revisit the old Dune. Maybe the better Dune. Maybe the more exciting Dune, depending on who you are. 
So I'm ex- yeah, I'm uh, I'm pumped to dig into that. Yes. Get in your dune buggy. <laughs> Come join us on the dunes where we will be discussing dune. And I think that's about it for this for this podcast. I hope you've enjoyed it. I want to thank our guest Zach Carlson for joining the festivities. I want to apologize to Phil Jawanu for mispronouncing his me- his name for so long, but uh, I do love his movies, several of them at least. And um, and as for you, the listeners, thank you. Thank you for, for sticking with us. And I hate to have to break it to you, but wherever you are, the world is wrong. And it's probably wrong about you. I have to talk to you. You should have called. These fucking holes are dangerous. It was hopeless. I had, I had to see you. My mind just had its own agenda, you know, so here I am. What time is it? Uh, it was three when I left the house. You want a drink? Mm. I've had two Valium already. I don't know if I should. My mind's just spinning with everything, you know? So? I mean, uh, Frankie came to tell me that you were working for him and... Why did you do that? What do you mean, why? Because I got away. So you're telling me you're a cop and he's telling me that you murdered two drug dealers up in the Bronx. No, that was a setup. They were cops. You killed two cops? No, it was a setup. It wasn't real. I had blanks. They went down to give me, like, credentials. Uh, you know, I, I don't know about this. I don't, I don't know about anything. You're asking me. I thought you were different. I am different. I'm a cop. They're my brothers, and you're going to put them in jail. Kate, you're jumping all over the no, place. No, I'm not jumping all over the place. My brother comes to me, and he's... He's telling me, you know, he trusts you, and I got... I have this knowledge that you're a... Uh, you know, when I told Linda everything, she said it was Whoa, all... who's almost, Linda? My shrink. I had a session today, a double session. You told your shrink? What? You told your shrink about me? Of course I told her. You're, wait a minute. You're telling me there's some shrink walking around the streets out there? She knows I'm a cop? Yeah, that's right. I have a shrink. Oh, fuck I love my me. shrink. I tell her what's happening in my life. That's what she's there for. Well, I have a right to try and straighten out my life. You could get me killed. Oh, shit. I thought I, I thought I was out of this. I thought I'd gotten away. You know, it's like some kind of trick. I don't know how I ended up here, but you got to help me. Terry. I can't leave town because I have a job, and I can't move any further uptown. <sighs> or I'll be a fucking Harlem, you know? So that's what I came here to tell you. Just, I, just stay away from me, okay? That's not why you're here. Yeah, it is. No. Yeah, it is. No. Yes, it is. You could have called. You could have waited. People don't come down to a place like this in the middle of the night to tell someone to stay away. Terry, don't. Kathleen, it's don't. okay. Don't. It's okay. It's okay. Get off of me! I don't want anything to do with you! Stay away from me! You're just like him! You're just like my fucking brothers! You are! You think you can come to me whenever you fucking want! And you just reach inside me and you... You just fall! You can't! I love you. You're a liar! I've met you before! You're a fucking liar! You shut up! Andros here. When I'm not 
co-hosting the World is Wrong podcast, I'm hosting and producing the Radio 8-Ball podcast, where we answer questions by picking songs at random, like picking musical tarot cards. We've hosted musical divinations for people like John C. Riley, Patricia Arquette, Tignataro, and Fred Armisen, and hosted over 200 songwriters providing the randomly chosen answers from Inara George and Dan Byrne to Mose Allison and Alan Toussaint. That's Radio 8 Ball, all one word. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts and download our app from the iTunes App Store. Show. 